0: Good morning. 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 How are you this morning? I just realized it's the afternoon. <laughs> this is uh, the first time I've actually been to a church service uh, after after the morning, so anyways, I apologize, but it's a pleasure and a privilege uh, for me to be here with you this morning and uh, honestly to get a chance to come back to Christ Community Church and a church that I had the privilege of coming to um, for a period of three years before moving to Dope Town And it's just so uh, exciting every time I come back to see uh, new faces and just what the Lord is doing, and also with the building uh, coming up, it's just uh, the Lord has done so much. And this morning, uh, it's my privilege to share with you uh, from the Word of God and to be able to preach. Uh, So if you have brought your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to go to Matthew and Matthew chapter 2. And uh, I should say it's especially a privilege to preach here at this time of year because Every single one of us knows what this time of year is, is isn't it? The season has changed. The, the warm weather has given its way to the cold snap of the weather. I don't even like to say this word, so I just put it this way. Um, the white stuff has invaded the ground. But it just doesn't seem like if it's going to decide to stay or not. But really what that points us to is the fact that it's winter. And when winter happens, there is a holiday in particular ...that is always on our minds. We can't escape it, can we? And we all know what that holiday is. That holiday is Christmas. And for us as Christians, that's really a time of year... um, ...where we get to spend and to reflect time on Christ. The one who the Christmas story ultimately is really all about, isn't it? Because when you remember back um, to the early pages of Scripture... ...God gives that promise in Genesis 3.15 that He would send a Redeemer... ...to crush the head of the serpent... And really what this whole Christmas story is about, is about God putting into motion the promise that He made early on in the pages of Scripture. And yet, one thing that can be so um, difficult for us at times, is that even though that is the point of Christmas, that it's about Christ, that it's highlighting the Son of Heaven who has come into this world, our attention and our focus can drift, can't it? And it can be taken away from that central message of Christmas, whether it's the commercialization or the busyness. And yet for us as believers, the only way we can combat that to make sure that our mind and focus is on the right place at this time of year is to have our hearts set on the Word of God, to be conformed by the Word of God, to to study it and to know it. And this morning, the text that we're going to be dealing with, I said this morning again this afternoon, is uh, a text where we see a bit of a different side of the Christmas story. A side of the Christmas story Where God has made that promise, he's going to be faithful to send Christ, and yet there is a threat that is posed to the promise of God. There's a threat that's posed, and what this shows us is that undoubtedly, though God intends to do good towards man, that's what it says in Luke 2, right? Peace on earth and goodwill towards those who God has pleased, there is still evil and corruption in this world that would not listen to the goodness of God in the Christmas story. But with that being said, what we find is that even though there is opposition to this promise, though there's opposition to God's purpose in sending his son, God, by his power and by his strength, remains faithful in spite of anything that man ever tries to do. And so, with that in mind, we're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. And the title of this sermon is just simply, The King Will Rule. Starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ who was to be born? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means, or sorry, least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained for them what time they had seen the star. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I, too, may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place. Then Herod, when he had seen that he was tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older, old or younger, according to the time that had ascertained from the wise men. Then uh, was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in the city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to hear your word. And Lord, I thank you for this story in Matthew chapter 2. And Lord, I just thank you so much that it highlights for us that Jesus Christ came into this world and he came to be king. And Lord, there is a great hope for your people this morning that our king is the one who has come and he is ruling. And Father, I just pray that you would press this upon us, that you would encourage us. And Lord, also for anyone who is here today who is outside of the kingdom of Christ. Anyone who has yet to come under his rule, Lord, I pray that they would see that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that they would be made right with him today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, at this point in Matthew's account, we know that he's set some things in place for us, hasn't he? So in the beginning of chapter 1, he's given us Jesus' origin from Joseph's side. That he did, in fact, come from the lineage of David. And then after Matthew sets this for us, what he does is he also explains the purpose in why Jesus came primarily. We know what that is from verses 18 through 25. That Jesus Christ came into this world for the purpose of saving his people from their sins. That though Jesus came for this reason, Matthew highlights another reason. Yes, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Yes, he came to set the captives free, to proclaim good news to those who were under bondage, and to proclaim good news and liberate all of those who are his people. And yet, on the same hand, even though Jesus is coming for that purpose, to save sinners, Jesus is also coming for the purpose to rule, and to rule as king. And Matthew fleshes this up for us, and that's... Really, the thread that I want to follow because in Matthew 2, you could also spend a lot of emphasis on the faith of the Magi or the wise men, and that's definitely there, and that's definitely something that is highlighted primarily. But I do want to catch this thread because realistically, when we look back to all the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus is presented as someone who has a kingdom that lasts forever. And really to highlight this section on him being king is to show us that there's something great about the coming of Jesus, not only as Messiah, but also as king. And there's some rumblings about this in this story, isn't there? We all know the story. We know that Joseph and Mary, they journeyed to Bethlehem on a donkey for the census that was set out by Caesar Augustus. And as they were going into Bethlehem, Mary was the child of She had the very Son of God in her womb who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she was about to give birth, and then there was no room for them in the inn. We all know this story. And since there was no room, the Son of God, the one who was born to be king, ended up being born in a stable, or in this time frame, it's really a cave, to the point of humility to show the humbleness of this king, that he came in absolute humility for his people. And then after this happens, we also understand that God himself puts a sign. The angelic hosts, they come and they sing glory to God, glory in the highest, don't they? Peace on earth and goodwill towards those whom God is pleased. And then we also know that what God does is he puts a star in the sky. And that's why this passage brings out for us a group that are called the wise men or in other translations, they're known as the magi. And they see this star, the star of David, and it's something that piques their interest. It's something that gets their attention. And the reason why it gets their attention is because we need to understand a bit about who the Magi are. The Magi so often are referred to as kings, and yet in the Gospel of Matthew, there's nothing that really points us to the fact that they actually were kings. But what we do know is that they were men who were men of science. And a highly regarded science of the day was astrology, the study of stars in space. And that's why when this star enters heaven, these men who are from the east, by the way, who are not Jews, they get interested. These men likely are from Babylon or they're likely from Persia. And sometimes people ask this question, well, if they're not Jewish, then what what is the reason why they would come and ask Herod a very pointed question? And we all know what that question is. He asks Herod, where is it where the king of the Jews has been born? Some people suspect that they might have known about this prophecy because of the Babylonian captivity. The answer is we really just don't know. But here's what we do know. Men who are outsiders, these magi are seeking this star. And they know that it's pointing them to the promised redeemer from old. And what happens is they get to... Uh, Judea, and they get to Jerusalem, and they make what we could kind of call a bit of an unfortunate stop, in a way. Because these men are going to where King Herod rules, trying to find information to try to find the king of the Jews who has just been born. And you would think that when they ask Herod this question, that it would go well, because Israel, they're looking forward to this promise. They're awaiting the day when the Messiah would come and that he would shepherd them and lead them, right? But the, but the answer they get from Herod and the welcoming they get is actually quite a bit different, isn't it? Because when they stand before Herod and they ask this question, when the Magi asks him where this king of the Jews has been born, Herod responds this way. It says that he's troubled, that he's actually terrified. That it's something that shakes him to the core, isn't it? And we have to ask this question. Why is that something that shakes Herod to the core so bad? And a lot of times we just need to look at history to understand this. Herod, whether you know this or not, he was not actually a king who held a legitimate, sorry, legitimate claim to the throne of Judea, did he? Because he wasn't fully a Jew. And not only that, he was born from the land of Edom. So because of this he was half-Jewish... And he was half Idumean. and what that means at this point, like I said, is he does not have a rightful claim to that throne. So then you might ask, well, if that's the case, how did he come to power in Judea? The Roman Empire at this point has conquered this area, and with his relationship with Caesar Augustus, that has put him in a position of power and authority. And that's why Herod, when he hears that this king who is to be the king of the Jews has come into the world. It rocks him a little bit. Because in his mind, that's posing to him a threat to his rule and his reign and his authority. And because of this, we can look at this from 2020 hindsight and see why the answer he gives to the Magi is a little bit problematic. But at the time, they don't really see why it's much of a problem. You see, Herod... In addressing the Magi, has in his mind that there's a threat to his throne, and because of this, he is opposed to this king of the Jews who has been born. And in his mind, he has to find a way to plot a way to find out where this king is, where this threat to his throne is, so that he can go and that he can deal with it. So here's what he does. The first thing he asks As he asks the chief priests and the scribes to give him some information. And this should show us something about Herod, shouldn't it? This should show us that Herod himself has an insignificant knowledge of the Bible. Sorry, an insignificant knowledge that a king should have if he is ruling and leading over the people of Israel, doesn't it? And then when he asks the scribes and he also asks the priests about this, they give him an answer. They give the king who, had, who should have known the answer to this question from the Magi. And they point him back to the prophecy that we find back in the book of Micah, doesn't he? This is the verse in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient of days. This answer is clear for Herod that he's in Bethlehem. That the king who has posed the threat to his rule, so to speak, at least in his mind, he's in Bethlehem. So what he does after this is he goes and he summons the Magi privately. And this is the offer he puts on the table for them. He says, You go and you search for the child. He's in Bethlehem. This is what the prophecy says. When you find him, send word back to me so that I may go and worship him too. This is what Herod ends up telling them. This is his plot because in his mind, here's what's going on. He is trying to find a way to locate and eliminate the threat. And when you think about Herod in this way, it was interesting. I was actually talking to my boss, uh, Drew, the other day. And he said, it seems like Herod's the real bridge that Herod's the Grinch attempted to steal Christmas. Because in all honesty, that's really what he's trying to do. He's trying to put to death the promised king, that Jesus, who is Jesus, that the Father has sent. And in this plan, and in this plot, he's trying to locate the son of David. He asks him about the star. He tells him to come and give him the information about where Jesus is so that he can come and worship him as well. And honestly, when Herod says this to the Magi... It doesn't really come across as too alarming, does it? Initially, for the Magi hearing this, they're probably thinking, well, no, that's, that's good. He's currently the king of Israel. He would probably want to know that information and come and worship him too. It almost comes across well-intentioned for the person who doesn't know him very well. It comes across well-intentioned for the person who can't read and discern character. And that's really what Herod does. He tries to pull the wool over their eyes and then encourages them to keep on with their quest of finding the king. And we can stop at this point, because like I said, we have that 2020 hindsight vision of how this story plays out, and we can immediately see that there are some red flags, aren't there? There are some glaring red flags in Herod in how he deals with the Magi. The first one is this. We discuss this. Herod, he doesn't have the right claim to the throne, The next one is that he isn't even aware of the prophecy of the son of David. He has to ask the chief priests and the scribes to give him the information. And then the last one is that he sends the magi on this quest. If Herod really was concerned about going and worshiping this king of the Jews who was born in Bethlehem, he would not send the magi and ask them to give word back to him. He would take it upon himself To go and find this king and worship him of his own accord. So now at this point, here's what we find. That Herod has got this, this plot, this scheme, and it will continue to unfold. But the only thing that's going well at this point is that Jesus Christ is still hidden in his location from Herod. At the time being, he's still safe from the one who intends to do him harm. He's still safe from the one who intends to wipe him out. And then what ends up happening is this story unfolds. The Magi, they continue to follow the star, and as they follow the star that God has placed in the sky for them, it leads them to the place where Jesus was. It leads them to the resting place, doesn't it? And what's interesting here is some time has obviously passed. They've moved out of the cave, and now they're living in a house. That's why our text tells us that they arrived when they went into the house So some time has passed. Some scholars believe it's around two years. But what's interesting is when they enter the house, what do they find? They find the child, the one who is the king of the Jews, with his mother. And then immediately, what the Magi do, though he's the king of the Jews, and though these men are outsiders, so to speak, they fall and they worship the king. Immediately, they are humble and they worship Christ. This is amazing, isn't it? Because it not only goes to the the point of where they fall in worship, but then they express their worship even farther, don't they? They give of their treasures. They give of their possessions gifts that are meant for royalty. The first one is gold, a valuable metal, a valuable and precious metal. The second one and third one are both fragrances, frankincense and myrrh. Once again, gifts that are meant for royalty. And they lay them down before Christ, and they give them to him. That is an act of humility and an act of worship. And we have to really look at this and ask ourselves, like what an act of faith that they have sought out the king whom they have never seen, and that they had pursued him, and that they had followed the star and they had gone on this quest. And when they got there, it wasn't oh, that's the answer to our quest. It wasn't an intellectual quest. It was a quest that ended in worship of the king. One in which they received the grace and the mercy and the favor of God, isn't it? And yet here's something that's interesting. And something that we need to be aware of in this story concerning the Magi. The Magi worship Christ and they receive the grace of God. And yet Herod, the one who's on the throne of Judea... And all of the ultra or the super religious of the day, the chief priests and the scribes, they pay no mind to Christ. They don't go and offer worship. Instead, instead of having that act of faith to worship Him, here's what they do: they stay back and they question the legitimate, sorry, legitimacy of this King and whether or not He really is to be the King of the Jews. They remain back. They let the wise men go, and they actually sit back and they wonder, is he the king? They remain indifferent, their hearts are cold, their hearts aren't excited that God is actually sending his son into the world. And instead of worshiping, they refuse and stand in opposition to Christ. And yet, there's an important principle here for us, isn't there? That the grace of God extends to anyone who humbles themselves and worships Christ. And so often we can get this backwards at times, where we can have this view of the grace of God and the gospel and almost have this ultra-religious attitude towards it, don't we? Where we can think to ourselves of so many people that we know who might be morally good, somebody who might be stand up in so many different ways and think that, you know, that person deserves the mercy and the grace of God. And then yet look at other people as outsiders, almost like these people would have looked at the magi and say that they really have no business coming to Christ. And I'm not saying that this is how everybody in the church is, but there is a type of ultra-spiritual spirit that creeps in, and that's how people end up viewing others. And yet this lesson for us is that the grace of God is for anyone who comes. Isn't it? That's incredible news. Because what ends up happening when somebody can't come to grips with the fact that the grace of God is for anyone who will humbly worship the King... They ended up they end up getting a little bit offended. They think, I just can't believe that the person who might have been morally put together and seemed like they were an ultra spiritual person and yet had a super cold heart before God, I just can't believe that they would be left outside of God's kingdom. And then it almost becomes offensive when someone who they think never should have deserved the grace of God ever is pardoned by the gospel and brought in. And yet that's what the gospel does, it's for everyone including the Magi. And they understand this, and that's why they worship Christ. And that is incredible news that we need to make sure that we have right on track in our thinking and to not have this spirit of ultra-spiritualism creep in because then we just sit back like the scribes and the priests and just always question everything, never actually understanding the greatness and the fullness of who the gospel is extended towards. Now, continuing with the Magi here, they experience the grace of God based on them humbly worshiping Christ. And then what ends up happening is they have completed their quest, haven't they? They have got to the conclusion of where they wanted to be. They saw the star. They were following to find the king. They have found the king. They have worshipped the king. They have received the grace of God. And now there's only one thing left for them to do, isn't there? They only have one thing left to finish on this quest. And that's to return word to Herod, where where Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, is. And you can wonder, you know, at this point, unless God intervenes, what would they have done? We know what the story is, right? That in a dream, they're warned that Herod is seeking to destroy the Son, the King of Heaven. So what they do is instead of going back to Herod, instead of returning word to him, instead of giving the location of this king to someone who intends to do harm, they just simply go another way. And here's what ends up happening. God intervenes even farther. Because once again, like I said, we have to understand that Herod is posing a real and legitimate threat to Christ, isn't he? God knows Herod's heart. He knows The evil intent that lies within him. He knows that Herod's intention is to do away with his son whom he sent into the world. So like the dream with the the wise men or the magi, an angel in a dream also appears to Joseph, doesn't it? And when they appear to Joseph, they say the same thing essentially. That Joseph, make yourself and the child and the mother ready flee to Egypt because Herod is seeking to destroy the child. He warns them. He gets the jump on Herod, so to speak. And here's what's so ironic about this. Because at this point, it almost seems like Mary and Joseph and the child, they're on the run. And yet, in all of this evil intent from the heart of Herod, he's actually causing God's plan and God's word to be fulfilled. The very acts that he's doing to try to stand in opposition to God, God is using to bring about the prophecy concerning his son, the king, isn't he? Verse 16 sheds some light on this for us. Verse 16, Herod perceives that the magi have played a trick on him. He, after some time, understands that, guess what? These guys, they're not coming back. They didn't give me the location of this king and then what he does is he sends out this extreme decree, doesn't he? An extreme decree. Because the time that it took from the Magi meeting with him to the, from the time when the star appeared, it's around that two-year mark. And that decree is simply this, that every single male child in the region of Bethlehem and the surrounding areas killed them. But at this point, Jesus, with his father and mother, Mary, Joseph and Mary, is already on flight to Egypt, isn't he? He's already safe out of that decree of Herod. It's amazing how when God intervenes, it sees he's always one step ahead of every single power of evil that would come against his anointed son. And what's amazing about this is, like I said, this is a very, um, very practical way in which God is revealing and fulfilling this prophecy. Because if you backed up to verse 15, what's the prophecy concerning the king? He says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. This is a reference, in case you're not aware, back to the book of Hosea in chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2. And here's the verse, and this is a prophecy primarily about Israel, but pointing to the king of the Jews, who is Christ. Verse 1 of Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. What is Hosea reminding the reader of? He's reminding them of Israel back in the time when they were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. What not he? And as he's reminding them about this former bondage back in Egypt... You have to think about it for a moment. They were under a cruel master, weren't they? They were under the bondage and the chains of slavery under the cruel master who was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is someone who did not have good intention towards the people of Israel. In fact, what we find is that Pharaoh himself ended up having very evil intentions. You might remember back in Exodus chapter 1 and 2... And in Exodus 1 and 2, Pharaoh had a very large concern about Israel. His concern was that they were populating at a rate where they would get so large in number that they would actually come and overthrow his dynasty and end up freeing themselves. That was Pharaoh's concern. And we all know Pharaoh's answer to this, don't we? His answer is no different than Herod's. Any single child... Male child, age two and under, cast into the Nile. That's an evil decree. It's one where he was threatening the line of David, yes, obviously at this point through Abraham. But guess what? God brought them through it, didn't he? He raised up Moses in spite of that decree. And he came and he led the, the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And this points us back to this because really at this same point, this is foreshadowing the one who would come and lead the people of Israel out of the greatest master and out of the greatest bondage, which is the bondage of sin. And that's really what Egypt is a type or a picture of, that that, that you need to be delivered from that cruel cool master. And Jesus, here's what's so strikingly interesting, is that God is actually using the land of Egypt to protect him from Herod and then eventually he brings him back out of Egypt so that Jesus can come and that he can do his work on earth as the redeemer of the world you see in all of this intent on Herod's heart all of this intent that's bringing up all of these evil decrees he's pushing Christ into Egypt and by his very actions is fulfilling the plan and the and what God has ordained Though he doesn't even realize it. It's almost like everything just blows back on him. It's what like we would call a blessed irony, so to speak. It's a blessed irony. Because guess what ends up happening? Herod, though that's his plan, he never, ever gets his hands on Christ, does he? Herod's plan to destroy this king of the Jews, it fizzles. It fades. It fades. It fails. This plan is brought to nothing. And not only that, what ends up happening from this point is that Herod realizes that he himself in his own strength, in his own power, cannot hold a single bit of power and authority against God's anointed, can he? And then what ends up happening? Herod, the one who was so concerned about his rule... The one who was so concerned about his power and his rule and his authority ends up dying when Jesus was around the age of four. After he dies, his kingdom divided among his three sons. Not only that, his legacy, though he was regarded as a good king for all of the infrastructure and buildings that he put in, he didn't have the greatest reputation because he was considered a puppet king of the Roman Empire. And really, at the end of the day, he wasn't respected as well as he thought he was. And then, to actually just add on top of this, Herod did not die a very peaceful death. We know from history that he ended up contracting an infection that actually had maggots eating his flesh. Herod ended in a very bad way. He ended in a way where his kingdom fizzled with his sons, The Herodian dynasty eventually faded out, and it became a footnote on the pages of history, didn't it? And guess what? You look at the list that we'll see in the Bible about Christ and his kingdom, and Herod's rule, and Herod's authority, and Herod's kingdom, is a far, far cry of that of Jesus Christ. The scriptures are so clear for us, that in all of his attempts... He didn't stop Christ. Jesus did come. He came as Messiah first, but he also came as King. And even to this day, the scriptures reign true that Jesus Christ is, in fact, ruling. Like I said earlier, Jesus did come primarily to be the Messiah. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, not to be served as you would think a king would, but to serve. He came to proclaim liberty. He came to set his people free from their sins. And here's what ends up happening. In that first coming, that's what he came to do. He came to die. That's why in John 6.15, this will create a bit of a problem for us, but we'll we'll make sure it all comes together. In John 6.15, Jesus, who came as the king of the Jews, was taken by the Jews. And by force, they tried to make him a political and physical king over Israel. But Jesus understands that his first and primary purpose is to come and die, and that's why it says that instead of going with them, he withdrew to the mountains, because his time had yet to come where he was to die. But then on the other hand, here's what we also understand. Verse 6 of Matthew chapter 2 tells us that Jesus is also the one who was supposed to be the shepherd over Israel, that he's supposed to be the one to lead the people of Israel, isn't he? And this... Is something that we need to make sure it works together, because both on one hand are true. And here's what the Bible says about this king when it prophesies about him in the book of Isaiah in chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, notice this, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This child... He is given the titles of majesty and authority, isn't he? it's is said by the prophet Isaiah that there will be no end to the increase of his government, that he will rule forever and ever, and that his reign, like I said, would never be taken, over, overtaken, or overthrown. That's what it says about him. And it's quite the description, isn't it? But here's the thing. That is in context of Israel. There's another passage in the Bible that gives us even more light about what this rule and this reign of Christ will look like, and it's a passage that we're all aware of, and it's one that I actually consider just preaching on. And it's in Psalm chapter two, where it says this in verses one through three: Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, "Let us burst their bonds apart." and cast away their cords from us. Now notice verse 7 of Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like the potter's vessel. Verse 10. O kings, be wise, be warned. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's what the Scripture is unfolding. That's what it's telling us about this King of the Jews who was born in Bethlehem. That he will rule with a rod of iron. That his kingdom will never be overthrown. And this list, like I said, that is a massive, far greater list than any list that Herod ever had spoken of him, isn't it? He is greater than Herod the Great. But then, like I said, we can read all of that. And what we understand about the Bible in Jesus' life is that he died primarily. And it almost seems like in John 6... He missed out on his opportunity to become king, doesn't it? Because like I said, they're looking for, in Israel, a political leader. Someone to physically sit on that throne and lead them. But like I said, Jesus first is Messiah. And after accomplishing that, then he is king. And that's clear for us in the Bible. That Jesus is king, and that he's king right now. Even though he withdrew and did not take that physical throne in Israel... Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. Because something the Bible paints for us and explains to us is that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And the Pharisees asked him about this. They asked him about this in Luke chapter 17. They approached Jesus, and they asked him a very simple question. You're the one who's supposed to be the king of the Jews? I'm just kind of filling in here. Then they said, how will we know when the kingdom would come You see, they know that he is supposed to be king of the Jews, and they are looking for him to come and physically rule and reign. And yet Jesus gives them a response that is so incredibly important for us to understand. In Luke 17, verse 20, this is what Jesus says about his kingdom. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus is hammering home something here, isn't he? That in him coming to this world, he is the king and he is ruling over his spiritual kingdom. And that's why when he stands before Pilate, he says essentially the same thing. Herod asks him that question: Are you not the king of the Jews? And he's sorry, Pilate. And what he says back to Pilate is this: Who do you say that I am? Well, your own people delivered you up. Jesus responds, My kingdom is not of this world, because if it were, my servants would be fighting for it. Jesus rules his kingdom, and it's a spiritual kingdom. But then it goes a step farther. Because in Isaiah, and in all the prophecy, it talks about this one who is Jesus Christ, who would come and rule on David's throne, doesn't it? And yet what we learn from scripture is that Christ himself has even gone that far. Because in Acts chapter 2, it talks about that prophecy from Isaiah 9. And when Jesus Christ completed His work of saving His people from their sins in His death, burial, resurrection, He ascended to the Father in heaven and was seated at His right hand. And notice what Acts chapter 2 says about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to Him... That one of his descendants would be on his throne. This is referring to David. He foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to hates, nor to his fleshly corruption. Then verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus Christ Reigns over the kingdom of this world. He is reigning at the right hand of the Father, and He one day will reign His final kingdom when He returns on that white steed with the blast of the trumpet, and He brings in the new heaven and the new earth. Because what we understand about that day, that final day, is that that's when He sets all things straight. Every single thing comes under His rule and His and. and under subjection to him, doesn't it? Because on that day, what we have for to understand is that Jesus Christ will come with that new heaven and earth and that kingdom will be final and eternal and never, ever end. That's quite a difference between the kingdom of Herod and the kingdom of Christ, isn't it? That's quite a difference When you think about how Herod was so concerned about Jesus overthrowing his rule, and yet you stack up the difference, and Christ is far more powerful and greater. There isn't a single ruler. There isn't a single authority. There isn't a single power in the entirety of this entire world that could ever hold a thing against Christ and his kingdom, is there? Every single king Every single ruler, Herod and every other one that has ever stood in opposition to Christ, they serve, like I said, as a footnote on the pages of history. That is the kingdom and the rule of Jesus Christ. And so with that ringing true for us this morning, and for us seeing that that thread is that Herod could do nothing to stop God's anointed son from being king, there's great encouragement, isn't there? There is great hope. For the Christian in this, isn't there? Because if you are like the Magi, in the sense that you have given your worship to Christ, you have worshipped the King, you have believed upon Him, you have surrendered to Him, and you are living for Him, the truth reigns is this, that you are part of His Kingdom, that you are in that eternal Kingdom, a Kingdom that will never be moved, and a Kingdom that will never be shaken all of the different evils in this world, all of the things that come against Christ and His church and His people, not a single thing should ever move us, especially when we know without a shadow of a doubt that one day, absolutely everything is brought under the rule and the subjection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great hope this morning? But then, at the same time, as great as that is, and as incredible and as amazing that is, as that is when we think about Christmas and we think about just the victory of Christ as King, there's also a very sobering side to this, isn't there? It's sobering because guess what? There's a very strong reality that even though this reigns true about Christ and His kingdom, there are people who have yet to cross from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. And very possibly, even someone in this room this morning has yet to cross over into that kingdom. And you might see Christ's kingdom in a very dangerous way. And what I mean by that is you might see Christ's kingdom as the scribes and as the chief priests saw it. Something that's indifferent. Something that's not really all that big of a deal. Something that never actually moved them to go and worship the king. And your heart might not necessarily be in the same place as Herod. It might not necessarily have that same level of evil, but here's the sad truth. Whether your heart is like Herod's or whether your heart is indifferent like the scribes and the chief priests, it lands you in the exact same spot, doesn't it? Outside of the kingdom of God. And the antidote the way to know that you are brought into his kingdom, safe from that final day when Christ does come with that rod of iron and puts all things straight and deals with absolutely everything, is to take a page out of the book of the Magi. To worship the king. To pledge your allegiance to him. To jump out of the side that would be opposed to him and to surrender A life of worship to the king. That's the antidote. I have that question for you this morning. When you think about Jesus Christ as king. When you think about all of this. About Jesus being the king of the Jews. And what that means about his eternal kingdom. Have you worshipped Christ? Have you worshipped him? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you again for your word. And Lord, I thank you for this story in Matthew chapter 2. And, and also this angle from King Herod who saw the threat to his throne. And yet he could st- not stand in the way at all because Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the amazing truth and the amazing hope that we have today is that his kingdom will never be overthrown. It will never be shaken. And that all of those who have turned from their sin and trusted upon Christ are a part of that kingdom. All of those who have worshipped the Son. And Lord, lastly, I just pray for anyone this morning who has yet to worship Christ. Lord, that you would be gracious towards them. And that they would see that the value and the power of Christ's kingdom. And that they would see that the only hope they have is to come under the grace of the all-conquering king.